I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word um, to the prose translation of the Psalms and Psalm 84. Psalm 84. It's the 84th Psalm, and we'll commence our reading there with the superscription. And beloved, once more, hear the inerrant, the infallible word, our holy God. To the chief musician upon Gethit, a psalm for the sons of Korah. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, the Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and in whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may we know his blessing together as we sit under it. This evening we conclude our time in the 84th Psalm. And I would note, beloved, as we've said, really up to this point, that, that while we sing, um, certainly after the psalmist, who in the time of this composition would have thought much about that pilgrim journey from from wherever he was in the promised land up to Jerusalem, up to Zion, to the temple where God had placed his name, that though we sing these words, and in our experience of worship, we, we certainly know something quite different than he did. Yet I trust that we've seen that in the scriptures, the worship of God is no less what he describes it here. That the public ordinances that are left to us in the new covenant are indeed the place where specially God meets with his people. And that you and I here then in the 84th Psalm are, are given a picture of that disposition of heart that the worshipers of God must have, whether in the old covenant or in the new. As we meet together to seek the living God, what we find in Psalm 84 ought to be recapitulated in your heart and in mine. But as we come to the close of this psalm, as we encounter verses 8 and, and down to verse 12, uh, we could encounter something of a question. You remember that in verses 5 to 7, we, 
we have something of a description of, of these who are the worshipers of God. He describes them in their blessedness, and he also describes them in their difficulty. But then, suddenly at verse 8, there seems to be something of a real transition. In fact, a sharp transition that almost, almost could lead the reader to think that there's been something of a disjunction. We go from that description of the worshiper of God to a prayer. A prayer that extends down to the ninth verse. And of course the question is, is this a disjointed, is this a disjointed aspect of the psalm? Is there some connection with what's gone before it? And beloved, I would suggest to you that there is. There is a connection between what we've seen before and what we have in our text this evening. You see, in the first several verses, you, you have, of course, the worship of God described to us. In verses 5 to 7, you have the worshiper described. But in verses 8 and 9, you and I hear the prayer of the worshiper. We're no longer describing him. Now we're listening to him as he pleads with God. And then as you come to verses 10 and 11, you find really the the cause of that petition. You have the psalmist's cry, the worshiper's great desire. And the psalm concludes in verse 12 with something of a description of this one. The worshiper, he says here, is blessed. Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. You remember, if you go back to verse 5, you encounter the worshiper is one here who who makes God his strength. Well, in verse 12, we're reminded that that man who's done so and who's evidenced that faith by earnestly seeking God in the public assembly, that man is truly blessed. And so these verses are not disjointed at all. The, The psalmist is, as it were, allowing the worshiper to speak allowing us to hear his pleadings with God, allowing us to hear his own articulation of the great desires that he has, and also reminding us that such a one is truly blessed, that he knows the great blessing of God. But as you leave that 12th verse, you and I are reminded of something that really should should frame for us our thinking this evening, that the worshiper that's described here He's a man who exercises faith. You do not find here in the 84th Psalm a man who approaches God without entrusting himself to the Lord. This is not a man who approaches God in a legal way. That is, a man who is self-righteous and depending upon the merits of his own worship. No, this is a man who has made God the Lord his strength by faith. This is indeed the man who has made the Lord his trust. And so by bringing that, something to a theme, distilling that for our purposes this evening, you could say that that these last several verses remind us that only the evangelical worshiper, that's the worshiper who, who has entrusted himself to the gospel, the evangel, only the evangelical worshiper is blessed. Only he is described in verse 12, and so consequently... Only he is described in verses 8 and following. And I want us to see that as the psalmist presents him to us. I want us to see that as the psalmist presents to us that manifest and sensible dependence these worshipers have. Verses 8 and 9. I want us to see also how these ones have a clear 
and earnest desire and how that desire is presented to us in the psalm. And then finally, I want us to revisit the description that we are given of these ones who we can call evangelical worshipers. So take, first of all, the dependence that these worshipers have, and that's given to us in verse 8. I want you to notice that as you look throughout Psalm 84, you'll find repetitions time and again, O Lord, God of hosts, and that's really one way of dividing the psalm. And in our text this evening, he begins with that, O Lord, God of hosts. It's a name that invokes the omnipotence of God. It's, it's, it's a name that reminds us of his sovereignty, that the God whom he is approaching is the God who works his will, and none can say, what doest thou? He is the Lord God of hosts. But then he says that he here is approaching also the God of Jacob. And beloved, you and I are to remember that that is a covenant name. He first of all invokes God absolutely, considered as he is in himself almighty. But then you come to this second name where he says that he is the God of Jacob. And beloved, that is certainly reminding us of that covenant of grace that he's made with the church. He's invoking then God, omnipotent, and the God of the covenant. But then you'll notice this. In verse 9, he pleads that God would behold what he calls here our shield. Now, I think often when we English readers encounter this, we we take this in the vocative sense, meaning we take this as another name for God. But I want you to notice that though the psalmist will do that in verse 11, that he will certainly do that syntactically, that is in the original, the, the psalmist here is not calling God their shield. The way you and I ought to read this is, Behold our shield, who is also thine anointed. That's really the meaning of the ninth verse. And so you have four names in these two verses, but two reference. God is named twice, and so is the anointed. Once called our shield, and once called the Lord's Messiah. That is, of course, the word for anointed here. Now, beloved, as we come to that, of course, you and I have to ask the question, what what does this mean? Who is the anointed? And I don't want us to go too far afield here uh, for sake of time. But I think it's right for us just to think briefly uh, how this idea was given to the church underage. Most commentators, early, modern, and contemporary, would remind us that that often when we encounter the anointed or that idea, first you have David in view, and there's good reason to see it that way. In Psalm 18, you remember, the Lord showeth his mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forevermore. David was, of course, called the Lord's anointed. And in a very special way, though Saul was as well, though priests and prophets were also anointed, David singularly holds that name. And you see that again in verse in, in Psalm 89. The Lord says, I have found David my servant with my holy oil have I anointed him. David emerges then in the history of Scripture as really the embodiment of this idea of the anointed one. But is that all? Is that all? 
If I can take you back to Psalm 89 for a moment, we find there that the psalmist reflects that in David, this anointed one, Israel was trained to think that her, her prosperity was lodged in David's prosperity. That the Davidic kings, as they prospered as God had promised, so all of Israel would come into bounty. You see that in Psalm 89 clearly. There the psalmist prays, Lord, where are thy former kindnesses which thou swearest unto David in thy truth? There's the reference to the Lord's anointed. But then I want you to notice this. Remember, remember, Lord, the reproach of thy servants. Note the connection there. He pleads that God would remember the covenant promises made to David. And then he also includes the well-being of all of God's servants in that. Now, I suppose in one sense that makes sense, doesn't it? In the well-being of Israel's king, Israel herself could expect blessing. And as David's throne prospered, all of Israel would prosper. As he was victorious on the battlefield, Israel was victorious. As he was prosperous economically, she was bountiful. But is there more here? And beloved, of course the answer is yes. And we can't miss this either. David here in the scriptures was also being used as a shadow to indicate something far greater. You see this explicitly in Ezekiel. The Lord says, I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. And even our call to worship has echoes of this very idea. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. And beloved, those sure mercies that were here spoken of in Isaiah 55 are uniquely applied to Christ and his resurrection by the apostle in Acts 13. As concerning, says the apostle, that he raised Jesus up from the dead. Now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And so, beloved, the sure mercies of David, says the apostle, in that he sees the bounty that comes to believers through the resurrection of Christ. Now, I recognize that that's perhaps a bit convoluted, but I think it's important for us to understand that Israel, the worshiper of God, if, if they were thinking about the Lord's anointed in terms of David, they were supposed to think about great David's greater son. The Lord was leading them to think in that way. If they saw a shadow in the reign of David, one of prosperity and, and one in which God had made promises to David that would accrue to all of Israel, they were to go beyond David and think of Christ, who they could only see through shadows, but think of Christ in whom all the promises of God made to his people are yea and amen. And so whether we get to Christ, beloved, in Psalm 84, either indirectly, that is through David as a type, or directly, we get to Christ nevertheless, and we must. And as we do so, friend, what these first two verses remind us of so very clearly is that the worshipers of God, they plead for grace. They plead for grace upon Christ's account, upon the account of the Messiah. I think that's striking. I think it's striking because you recognize here the psalmist does not plead with God upon the basis of his sacrifice, upon the basis of, his other, of, of what other pretended merits he could boast in. 
he pleads that God will be gracious for the sake of his anointed. You remember those words in Micah 6. There the man prays, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I br- give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And here the worshiper in Psalm 84 resoundingly says no. All will be insufficient. If I receive grace, it will be because the Lord has looked to his anointed. If I receive grace from Almighty God, it is for Christ's sake. And beloved, the apostle says that to us very directly in Ephesians 4. God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And so our first point this evening, I recognize somewhat elongated, but nonetheless important. Our first point is here very clearly that that those who worship God are right, and those who come supplicating for the grace of God are right, do so pleading that the Lord would look to Christ. Pleading, in other words, that only Christ, his merit, would be considered, and nothing of themselves. Beloved, that is the character of the evangelical worshiper. It's the character of an evangelical prayer. We pray in Christ's name because we recognize that only in him are we accepted. But it's also right for us to pray for Christ's sake, that the Lord would be gracious. That the Lord would, as he has promised, for Christ's sake, visit his people with blessing. I wonder, I wonder if we would be a different people that if we reflected on the things that we've prayed for and find them answered, things like like those moments where God takes up his word and, and leads us to adore him more through it, when God, as we pray for, that he, he would search us and, and would lead us to greater repentance, or that when we come into the public assembly and have something like what the apostle describes in 1 Corinthians 14, where there we meet with God, I wonder if we would be different people if we said, I only know that blessing for Christ's sake. If I were outside of him, I would not have it. Well, that is precisely how the psalmist prays, and that's how we ought to think. If I receive grace, it is only in Christ and for his sake. This will induce humility in us, Like Jacob, we will cry, we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies. It will also lead us to great boldness. It does that in Psalm 89. Lord, where are thy former loving kindnesses which thou swearest unto David in thy truth? Beloved, you remember that the promise that was made to Christ, that the Lord's people would be a willing people in the day of Christ's power, was a promise made to the Redeemer. We can plead that that the Lord would make us more and more willing in so many other promises for his sake, and may even do so boldly. And so there you have the sensible dependence of the psalmist as he worships. But very much more briefly, we also get a picture of his desire. He invokes God, verses 8 and 9 here, so very solemnly. And it leads to the question, why? There are two reasons why men invoke God in such a way. Typically two reasons. 
one out of extreme pain. The man, the woman is pushed to their extremity and from that pain, that sense of of absolute dependence and also of exquisite torment, they cry out to God. But the second way that men are led to invoke God so is through earnest desire. And in verses 10 and 11, that's precisely the cause of the psalmist's prayer. Note the conjunction in verse 10, and we ought to take it as a conjunction. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. Why is he pleading so seriously and solemnly with God? Because he recognizes that the blessing, the blessing, by the way, that we've been meditating on, the blessing of coming and meeting with God in the public ordinances, is better than a thousand days elsewhere. In other words, the psalmist here sees in the public worship of God something so desirous that it urges him to plead with God so. And so, beloved, briefly you and I are taught here that that worshipers plead from a great sense of desire that God would use the means graciously, the public worship graciously for them. I want you to notice, first of all, friend, that the psalmist here is not engaged in some kind of formalism. We're not talking about ritualism for the sake of ritualism. You remember, and we've seen this before, that that Israel of old had the ordinances from time to time, and even had the pure ordinances from time to time, and yet those ordinances did not do them any good. Again, in Isaiah 6, you find they had the pure preaching of God's word, but because it came to them without divine blessing, it was for their hardening, not for their conversion. And so you and I are to understand in Psalm 84 that the psalmist is not pleading just out of some kind of penchant for ritualism. He's pleading that God would take up these means and to use them graciously. And he's saying that in doing so, there is more to be had in the public worship. When God does that work, there is more to be had in that than the psalmist desires a thousand days elsewhere. There is nothing, says the psalmist, the world can offer me that even compares to what grace I might find when God takes up these means. And applies them to me. And beloved, what are those things? I'll just briefly reiterate what we said before. Unless unless a people are under extraordinary judgment, the apostle tells us that in the public assembly of God's people, it should be common that the unbeliever falls down on his face, worshiping God and reporting that God is in the church of a truth. 1 Corinthians 14. Ordinarily, it is the sanctuary still, that is, the public ordinances of God's worship, where the Christian is reclaimed, where, like in the psalmist of Psalm 73, he's turned away from worldliness and turned to cherish his heavenly possession that is none other than God the Lord. In other words, beloved, the psalmist has in mind here the blessings of public worship. And to illustrate this, allow me just to read you a quote. It's a quote from one of our forebears. It's lengthy, but I think it it hits the very note you and I should be hearing from this text. The most wonderful things that are now done on earth are wrought in the public ordinances 
though the commonness and spirituality of them makes them seem less wonderful. Here, the Lord speaks life unto dry bones, raises dead souls out of the grave. Here, he gives sight to those that are born blind. Here, he cures diseased souls with a word. Here, he dispossesses Satan. Here, he overthrows principalities and powers, vanquishes the powers of darkness, and causes Satan to fall from heaven like lightning. All in the public ordinances of the new covenant. And to all of that, the psalmist says, I would rather be there than a thousand days anywhere else. Where God is doing that work, I would rather be there than anywhere. If that's the psalmist's desire, it certainly leads us to the end of our psalm, where we're given again another description of the man. First of all, his promise is described to us. In verse 11, we're told, No good thing will the Lord withhold from them that walk uprightly. And in the context, friend, what does it mean to walk uprightly? It means to walk by faith. And especially in this 84th Psalm, the man has in mind those who are earnest worshipers of God. Again, those who he describes in verse 5 as the one who who has the ways of pilgrimage, the, the very entry into the public worship of God pressed in upon his heart. These are those whom the psalmist tells us the Lord will withhold no good thing. And then you have, again, as we've seen before, that 12th verse, where not only is his blessing described, but again the man himself, his character is described. He is a man who is trusting in the Lord. He's not a legalist. He's not imbued with self-righteousness. No, he's one who is entrusting himself, as we saw in verses 8 and 9, to the Lord's anointed, seeking only grace through him. This is the man who is blessed. If we keep all of these things in context as we ought to, if we, if we hear these last verses in light of what's gone before, and beloved, the blessedness that's described here certainly extends well beyond this life. But surely it has special connection to the very thing the psalmist has been insisting on time and again. And that is the blessing of meeting with God in the public worship. There, no good thing will be withheld from them. In the right use of the means of grace, that is, as we approach God through Christ penitently, and faithfully. There, says the psalmist, you and I should expect blessing. This is what it means to approach God as an evangelical worshiper. And how, much prom- how many promises are given to us there? There's a contrast in the scriptures that really distinguishes what you have for us in verse 12 from what we could call the formalist. That is, one who does come to the worship of God, who, who fills space, as it were, who, who engages in the rituals, but who nevertheless doesn't approach God through the Lord's anointed, does not approach with saving faith. The contrast is given to us in Psalm 78. In verse 19 of that psalm, the psalmist describes Israel. They spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? There, there's no presence of faith. Again, that's reiterated to us in verse 22. They believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. These ones did not know the blessedness 
that is described for us in Psalm 84. Beloved, how often is it the case that that is how folks approach the worship of God? Wondering, can God take up these means that seem so contemptible? Can he, can he take up these things? Can he furnish a table in the wilderness and feed his people? Beloved, if we would lay hold of the blessings that are in Christ, we must be pleading for an increase of faith. To close and to close very briefly, um, beloved, I think this 84th Psalm certainly holds out for us a number of questions. And the first question is probably the most basic and for our generation the most existential. The question we have to ask ourselves, you and me, is, is public worship so much to me? Are the public ordinances of God today, do they hold so much for me as they did for the psalmist? To answer that question, friend, I think there are two ways of looking at it. First of all, I, I think, as I, as I indicated last Lord's Day evening, there are times when God will withdraw his presence in chastisement from a church generally, from a national church generally. Uh, I probably have given you this quote before, but during the killing times in Scotland in the 1680s, there was a man who heard many of those preachers. But after they had been killed or died of natural causes, and this man continued to live on, and he lived on, and he heard the preachers that followed them, there was one remark, a haunting remark that he made. And he said, the gifts preaching have remained but the graces are no longer there in other words men could preach still they could get up they could expound the word of god they could they could fill the hearers with theological information people could gain knowledge but that grace of god that turned men's hearts to be inclined toward god that grace where the public assembly looked like what was described for us in 1 Corinthians 14. He said that was manifestly gone. That wasn't there anymore. All men were great orators, some of the greatest. Great thinkers. Many were attending the ordinances. But God in his gracious presence was absent. In Amos's day, that was described as a famine of the word. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it's described for us as the removal of a candlestick. The external form may be there, but God's gracious presence is not. Friend, I wonder today, I wonder today if we lay those kinds of things to heart. I think that if we did, I think we would be a people who pray, who regard corporate guilt very much more, that we recognize that we are already, even in the church of God, under tokens of his displeasure. That's not to discourage us at all. But beloved, when he calls his people to fasting and to mourning, 
we should not go feasting. When, we, when he calls us to be humbled before him, for our lukewarmness, we should take notice of those tokens of his displeasure. Confess, as Ezra did, that this belongs to us rightly, and then plead through repentance in Christ that it would be removed. On a more personal and private level, sometimes, beloved, the public worship of God lacks this kind of blessedness as a chastisement for private sins. You and I, we are reminded that he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. How often, beloved, do we come into the place of worship not diligent, pleased actually at times to allow ourselves to be distracted, not thinking that we are drawing near to the living God. Another case is very similar. Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If, if I am not of a penitent disposition, should I expect to meet with the living God in the public ordinances? The obligation for the believer is every time. The psalmist says, I will wash my hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord. Are our public assemblies not what we see in 1 Corinthians 14? Perhaps it lies here. And we could go much, much further. Beloved, Psalm 84 is a reminder to us that we need to be pleading. Pleading that God would visit us as the psalmist here sees in visiting his public ordinances of old. But what of those who do come? They come through Jesus Christ. They come, yes, with sin, but they come with an earnest desire to meet with God. Not just to learn about him, but to really be inclined to him, to be changed more into the likeness of his son. What about them? Friend, in Psalm 84, there is something here that I think we could overlook. Why does the Lord give his people such a desire as you have in Psalm 84? Obviously, this is a work of grace. Why does God give it to them? A wonderful answer to that. And that is because the Lord himself delights in his people as they approach him in the special way. I can show that to you from Psalm 87 pretty directly. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And by extrapolation, we can go a step further. Christ, of course, prays in John 17, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. And though primarily it is eternal bliss that Christ has in view, friend, remembering that our God is present, especially in public worship. That there he delights to give his people a foretaste of heaven. Surely those words apply to the public ordinances of the gospel today as well. That Christ himself is pleased. That his people would draw near to him in this way. And so though I acknowledge our time is gone, as we leave Psalm 84, there are, I think, particular applications that we're to take from it. The first one is perhaps the basic one. It is that you and I, we are called not to forsake the public ordinances unless extraordinary circumstances hinder. 
Beloved, this is, this is a point that I know, I know we don't like to insist on. But if this is where God has commanded us to be, and, and this is especially where the Christian is called to find the blessing of God, then surely only the most extraordinary circumstances will bar. And there will be extraordinary circumstances. There will be providential hindrances. But we should take stock of ourselves. Are, are the hindrances that we use actual hindrances? And if they're not, then, beloved, allow this 84th Psalm to exhort you to expect good things as you seek the living God through his ordinances in the time to come. A second point of application is that as we do come to the worship of God, beloved, we need to be a people who are prepared in heart to meet with him. I think this is perhaps one of the greatest difficulties in our generation. It's one that has challenged me this past week in new ways. The psalmist continues to refer to the public ordinances as meeting with the living God. If you and I on the Saturday evening, if you and I were told that in the Lord's Day morning we would awake in the presence of Almighty God, having passed through death, how would we guard our thoughts on the Saturday evening? How undistracted would we be by the things of the world? How earnest would we be in in cutting off the sins that so easily beset us? Beloved, how, how is it then that so often when we come into the worship of God, when we would meet with him, there's so little preparation? This is the nearest meeting you and I will have with the living God on this side of death. And so surely this 84th Psalm urges us to prepare to meet with him here. But lastly, the exhortation, love it, is that as we come to worship, the thing that we ought to be pleading is not that God would look upon the difficulties that we've overcome in order to be present. We shouldn't be pleading that God would hear us because of any merit in our prayers or our praising. When we come into the worship of God, beloved, our cry ought to be that he would hear us and be gracious to us for the sake of his anointed. As it were, that the only thing that we bring with us is Christ into the public assembly. And that we ask that for his sake, he would visit us in grace. May we be such a people. May we be a people more and more who for Christ's sake plead that we would meet with the living God as we worship him together in the days and the years to come. Amen.